Well, many Christians uh, will tell you, um, to the surprise of some, <laughs> that they're not fond of religion. Those same people will usually go on to tell you they would really rather not talk about it at all. They will gladly tell you about Jesus, but let's not, they say, waste any time talking about religion. Now, I understand what they mean, and I can agree wholeheartedly with their sentiment. But in spite of that, this morning, I would like to take a little time and do just that to talk about religion. Now, you, of course, will have to be the judge of whether it's been a waste of your time or not. But I assure you, we will end up uh, talking about Jesus, and we will get there pretty quickly. I hope you'll think that the path we take will be worth the trip. When we um, try to think about religion, we realize there are a number of things they all have in common. Each religion thinks differently about them, certainly, but we find in them everywhere things like uh, a belief in the existence of God or something, whatever they might call it, that ought to be worshipped or revered or respected. And there's usually some kind of a belief in a heaven or afterlife or, or something, at least it goes on after a person dies and at least some discussion of what happens when you do die. And then there are morals. Uh, that is the things which are right and those which are wrong. And all religions have something to say about those. And in fact, you can't be human or remain human very long and get very far from moral thoughts. Those are the kinds of things that religions have in common. Now, there are great differences in what the various religions say about each of those things. And in spite of a growing number of people who wish it were otherwise, those differences are not easily reconciled. For example, the God who sent his son to die for sinners is a vastly different God than the one who wants you to send your sons to kill the infidels and die in the process. Those two things cannot be reconciled. And your idea of what or who God is will affect the way that you view the world. Now, Christians still love those of other religions and who think differently uh, than, than we think. We still love them. We still reach out to them. We want them to come to know Jesus Christ. But we don't force anybody to do that. There is an interesting observation we can make, though, when we start talking about religions. It really is quite possible to take every religion in the world and put them all into one particular group to say this certain thing about them, which is true for all of them, everyone that is but one. There, there is one religion that simply cannot be fit into that box. No matter how hard one tries, you cannot shove it in there. And it shouldn't surprise you that that one religion that doesn't fit is, well, let's call it, biblical faith. And I have to say it that way. I have to talk about biblical faith because some people have distorted 
the truths found in the Bible and the thing they call Christianity doesn't resemble what we see in God's Word. Now, they can call it what they want, that's true, but it certainly isn't a reflection of what's taught in the Bible. And their religion does fit in that box with all the rest, but not the faith of the Bible. You cannot put it in that box. See, what you can say about every other religion in the world is this. They represent people's efforts to reach God. They're people's labors to get on God's good side. So men and women try to do good things or not do bad things so that they can please God, so that they can earn a place in heaven. But the biblical biblical faith is not like that at all. It's different. It really is God's effort to reach people. Or to put it another way, it's God who makes us right. See, people cannot do anything to save themselves. So God, because he loved us, did what we could not do. He saved us. He made us right with him. The good things which we do don't earn us any merit before God. We just do them because he loved us and we love him. The difference between the two, between religion, which is trying to get to God, and biblical faith, where God is reaching out to us, is world-shaking. It ought to make us sit up and take notice. This is not some obscure notion about some particular paradigm, which, of course, when noted would make it different from all others. This is the entirety of every religion summed up in a single thought or description into which they all fit but one. And the fact is that that one doesn't fit tells us that of all religions, it is unique. There's not another one on the face of the earth like it. At its very core, it is different than all others. And it brings about a different way of life. All religions cannot be true. Therefore, all religions cannot come from God. Some religions, at least, must be man-made. And as one theme captures the essence of them all and is seen in all of them except that one, we readily see humankind's hand all over them. Human-made religion. That the person is the mover. His or her efforts are all important. Such as a result of the fall when man wanted to become like God, but of course failed miserably. But the results continue today. But in the religion that God has given us, he is the mover. It's his effort which are, well, everything. That truth stands like a mighty mountain on the plane of human experiences and existence. And you ignore that to your great peril. I have to say, for the sake of completeness here, I have to take a moment and explain something. As Christians, we believe that our faith is the completion or the fulfillment of Judaism. 
that the Jewish faith contained Christianity as, a, as an acorn contains the oak. And the Jewish faith itself, although it's been corrupted in some places, uh, in the same way that others have corrupted uh, its fruit Christianity in some places, it also is a faith where God saves his people because they cannot save themselves. You and I, let me say it again, you and I cannot save ourselves. You and I cannot make ourselves righteous. God must do it for us or it won't happen no matter how hard we try. And that is a tenet of biblical faith, of biblical Christianity, which I have no doubt that most of you here believe. What I'm less sure about is our appreciation of just how completely this truth pervades our faith. We understand it well enough when it applies to our salvation, but do we see how it matters in the way we live our lives as Christians, how it fills and colors and molds and shapes the very meaning of what it is to be and live as a Christian? Well, I'm not so sure we do. (laughs) But there's someone who did, and we have his thoughts uh, recorded for us in a letter that he wrote to friends of his at a church which he had founded earlier in his life. The letter is entitled Philippians, and it's found in our Bible. And as such, it's more than just the thoughts of a man, even a great man like Paul, the apostle. It is the Word of God. And as such, it's written to all of his people And therefore, it's written to us here today. So I want to invite you to join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians. This time, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And of course, we'll have the uh, scripture up on the screen on either side of me. Now, I have to tell you, uh, to begin with here, that this is an incredibly hard passage to teach. It involves a lot of detail and explanation, which is hard to do and hard to listen to. So it's going to take work on your part. But I think if you stay with me, by the time we get to the end, you'll have a better appreciation of the difference between mere religions and the biblical faith. Paul begins this section of the letter with a command to do something which he's mentioned several times before in this letter. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. You know, it really isn't an exaggeration to say that one of the things which marks our faith is this propensity towards joy. Our joy is uh, specifically in the Lord and not in our circumstances, so we find that believers can be happy or joyful in the midst of great hardship and sorrow. And joy is a continual theme in the Word, and we're often told that we should be joyful. Not that we always are, mind you but that prospect is always there. Sometimes we're even criticized for it. Most of you have heard the term Puritan, and if I were to ask most of you what it meant, you would say, well, somebody's always kind of got a sour look on their face and that kind of thing, you know, just real strict and not happy. But that's not true. And the people who were enemies of the Puritans back in that day used to complain about them. They would say, They have too much joy. (laughs) You know, imagine that for a complaint. They thought they must not understand things because they're too happy. And we do, indeed, have great 
reason to rejoice as believers, and we'll talk about some of that shortly. But really, it's not surprising for us to hear the apostle say those words. But he doesn't dwell there very long on that thought. Instead, he, he seems to abruptly kind of change course as he issues a warning. But he's not really changing course. He's warning his friends of something which will rob them of their joy. And not only that, it'll rob them of their effectiveness as Christians. When he begins by saying in the rest of verse 1, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Yeah, what Paul's going to say next he says to safeguard the Philippians. He says it in order to protect them. Those are his friends there. He, he doesn't think of it as a burden to write it again, even though he's spoken to them about it before, either in an earlier letter which he wrote to them or when he was with them in person. He, he thinks it's worth the effort to warn them again. And his words in verse 2, really forceful. Watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Actually, the Greek reads this way. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. The NIV smooths out that translation because that kind of repetition strikes our ears as odd. But Paul is really emphasizing by that repetition our need to guard against these people. And that's why he says, watch out three separate times. I have to tell you something. Someone who's new to the faith or unfamiliar with the Bible, some of its history, would be at a loss here. Uh, They would be wondering just what Paul is talking about, and they would also wonder, why does he seem to be so angry or bitter? Why is he such strong pejorative when he's talking about this people. Well, we'll see what he's talking about in just a minute, but before that, we need to understand something. Paul's not really angry or bitter here, although we may think he has a reason to be when we understand what's happening. Once again, what he's doing is he's being emphatic and descriptive. Every one of these terms are meant to describe and so they tell us about the people that Paul is talking about. And that term dogs, it's, it's not talking about something like your little family pet, but about the packs of scavengers who roamed Palestine in those days and that preyed on the weak and infirm and, and roamed the, the garbage dumps of the day. These people would come into the churches, and by their teaching they would hurt the weak and those who were new to the faith. He calls them evildoers because... The things they were doing in the name of religion were deadly to the believer's joys. And, and, and when he calls them mutilators of the flesh, he tells us exactly who they were in the historical context. He uses a play on words here to tell us that these people were those who were going around and telling people Christians that in order to be saved, they had to put their faith in Christ and they had to follow the law, which meant the men had to get circumcised. And the technical term for that is they were Judaizers. Now this is a corruption of the biblical faith, which teaches and always has taught, even in the Old Testament, that we cannot save ourselves, that God must 
save us and we can add nothing to his work. That's the uniqueness of the biblical faith. That's what makes it different from all other religions. Yes, it's true, as we've already said, once we're saved, then out of our love for God, we live in a way that pleases him. But we don't do anything in order to get him to like us. He already loved us enough to send his son to die in our place and pay for our sins. We can't do anything to get God to let us into his heaven because somehow we've done something good or special and so we deserve it. That is not the faith that we profess. The faith is simply trusting God because he loves us and sent his son to save us and we cannot add anything to that. And in verse 3, Paul says to all those, including us, who have put our faith in Christ, not in works, but Christ alone, for it is us who are the circumcision, who serve God by his Spirit, who boast or exalt in or rejoice in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. You know, we can summarize all that Paul says here this way. We are the ones who belong to God, and we don't put any trust in what we can do. That's what putting no confidence in the flesh means. It's not those who want to add something to the faith. It's not the Judaizers who want men to get circumcised and everyone, male or female, to keep the ceremonial aspects of the law. It's not the legalist of our day who tells you you must do or not do this thing or that thing. Well, don't go play cards. Don't dance. Don't go to movies, whatever it might be, or they tell you you have to keep your hair shorter if you're a man, or you have to wear dresses if you're a woman. That last one has changed, by the way, since when I first became a believer. I know a woman who went to a mission society to become a missionary with them, and she had always worn dresses, and she was comfortable in it. And they said to her, you've got to stop wearing dresses. You need to wear jeans. They said, we'll know that you're faithful when you start wearing jeans. And all the focus was on the outside. You know, Paul goes on, he says, for the sake of argument, he goes on and he says something like this, if anyone could have earned his or her way into heaven, it would have been me. And that's what he means when he says in verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in what they do or in the flesh, I have more and he goes on to tell us in verse 5 and 6 all the things which he could have relied on and which he did, in fact, rely on before he came to Christ. And those first four things were hereditary. They were beyond his control, but for legalistic righteousness, they were vital. So he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's a day prescribed by the law. The Egyptians did it on the first day, and the Ishmaelites, as they still do, do it on the 13th day. But the, the Bible says, the Old Testament, it's the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was one of God's chosen people of all the nations of the earth. God chose that nation as his special people, and Paul was one of them. He of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, 
one of the most honored of the tribes from whom their first king came and who resisted the temptation of idolatry longer than any other tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. A Jew born of Jewish parents, not a convert and no taint in his blood. And a Hebrew, not just a Jew born of Jewish parents, but a Jew who was under the law and who spoke Hebrew. And then the last three things that is listed that are under his control, they're done by personal choice and conviction in regard to the law of Pharisee. That was the strictest sect of the Jews and most closely uh, aligned with the Bible and demanded the most of its followers. And that was what Paul was part of. As for Zeal, he was persecuting the church. The law was so important to him, and he saw Christianity as a threat to it because he didn't understand. So he tried to destroy the church. He was zealous. And as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. When it came to legalistic righteousness, faultless, he diligently kept the ceremonial aspects of the law. In short, if anyone could be confident of having a standing before God by the things they do, Paul could Paul met Christ, he realized that those things were powerless. And he says so in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All of that stuff, all of the things he relied on to give him a standing before God, he simply rejected. Those things he was basing his eternity on, he now viewed not as a positive thing, not even as a neutral thing, but as a loss. They didn't give, they took. They hindered, they got in the way of real faith. Maybe you're here today, and that describes you. You think you're okay because you were baptized. Or you belong to some particular church or you're a pretty good person, you're nice (laughs) or you're not so bad you haven't robbed a bank or killed anyone none of that matters now that's not quite right (laughs) it's not quite the right way to say it, those things when when it comes to a relationship when it comes to eternity when it comes to salvation they aren't positive, they're not neutral They're a negative. They're a loss if you let them get in the way of your faith, of a relationship of you and Jesus Christ. Cling to them. You cling to mere religion when you could have so much more. You could know God himself as a loving father and a constant companion. That's what the biblical faith offers you. I'm back to Paul here. It's a little harder to capture in the translation, but just let me tell you, the Greek tense of verse 7 means that long ago, Paul made a decision to reject all of those things, and that decision continues to this day. He turned from all of that self-worth and self-work when he turned to Christ. That is what happened when he was saved. It's what happens when we're saved. But that decision that he made was not just something that he did in the past, but one he continues to make daily in his life. That's what we see in the first part of verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider 
them rubbish. And here the Greek tense is it's present active. It's, it means it's an activity that's happening now and it continues to happen. In a sense, every day, Paul is considering everything a loss. And again, that means not a positive, not a neutral, but a negative. It gets in the way of real faith. And now it's not just those things that he, as a religious Jew, had counted them to make him right with God, but anything at all and everything that someone might think of as merit or giving them a point with God, that's what Paul rejects. There's, there's something worth so much more than our own efforts of being good. And Paul says what that was. We just read it in verse 7 and following. Whatever gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Jesus Christ and our relationship to him, that's what's important. Paul gave it all up for the sake of Christ. Knowing him is a surpassing worth. Everything else is just so much junk that gets in our way with our relationship with Christ. Paul gave it all up so he could gain Christ, or as some translations put it, win Christ. And what he goes on to say helps us to understand what that means. When in verse 9 he says, I gave it all up so I could gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. When we first come to Christ, when we put our trust in him, once we've called on his name and asked him to save us, he, he comes to us and he lives in us through his spirit whom he sealed us with as we belong to him forever. But we grow to become more like him as we continue in the faith, not trusting in what we do, but rather trusting in what he has done and will do in us. Living in a relationship with him, that's what it's all about. Our righteousness, the way we live our life day in and day out, comes from a relationship with God and it's through faith. It's not based on what you or I do. You see, the difference is between mere religion, where one of the, one of the whether it's one of the world's uh, other world religion or something that calls itself Christian that doesn't reflect the biblical faith, and the biblical faith itself. It's a difference between a, a, a business relationship and a family. In a business, you may, or like your clients and customers, then again, you may not, but you do business, and at the end of the day, you go home. They're no longer a part of your life at that point. Mere religion's like that. It's a matter of transactions. It's not a relationship. And most of the time, you're glad when you get the work done, and you can relax, and you can be yourself. But in a family, well, the truth is, Sometimes you feel love for them, and sometimes you might be angry with them, but they're family. <laughs> they're always a part of your life, even when you're at work, and you know where your heart belongs. 
the biblical faith is all about family. It's all about relationships. Sometimes we misunderstand one another, but you don't go home from it. <laughs> you belong to one another. We're family. And you and I, we belong to God. You know, if Paul were here right now, he'd probably say something like this. Listen, believers, guard yourselves against any teaching which tells you you have some standard that you have to meet in order to get God to love you or accept you. He loved you before you ever even gave him a thought. He loved you before you were born. He loved you before the world was created. And he sent his son to pay for your sins. And what he wants from you He wants to walk with you every day and spend time with you and let you get to know him. He already knows all about you, and yet, even though he knows everything about you, he loves you still. This is a battle, I think, that we fight most all of our Christian life. When we're first saved, there's this exhilaration. The weight has been removed from us. We know forgiveness of our sins, but our fallen human nature begins rebuilding that religion of humankind and we, we begin trying to rely on ourselves again and the things we did would rob the peace and joy for we could never do enough. We sin and we be trying to make that right what Christ has already made right. What God wants from us is this kind of continual reliance on him, learning to walk with him every day and to grow in our knowledge of him and in our relationship with him. And as we attempt to do <coughs> there's a kind of change that comes over us. We discover this kind of deep and abiding love for our God. Not that we don't fail still. We do. We, we slip back into mere religion. But we know there's more. We know there's something better. Listen to the way that Paul describes that heart change in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. <coughs> I want to get that last line out of the way first. When Paul says somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead, he's simply saying this, in whatever way I meet my end, whether it's in this prison and I'm condemned to die, or whether I'm set free from this prison to die another day in another way, even of uh, old age, however it happens, I know I will be raised from the dead. But listen to how he describes his longing for Christ. I want to know him. That's his goal. That's the desire of his heart. And he wants to know all about him. He wants to know the power of his resurrection to see God at work in his life, to have that power which Christ raised Christ from the dead at work in him and through him. And just who of us would want that? But Paul's desire goes deeper than that. He wants to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. His love for Christ means that he wants to walk with him, whatever may come, even if it means sharing in suffering long time ago, before our children, 
<coughs> we were talking about having kids, Anne and I, and um, one of the things we knew we had to do is she had to get a, a rubella titer. I don't even know if they still give those things or not, but she had to get this vaccination. And something happened. She had a reaction to that, but nobody knew that that's what it was. She's developed some symptoms as a reaction. And we went to the doctor, and the doctor's looking at this, and he's saying, there's all sorts of things here. He starts running tests for all these different diseases. I don't even remember what they are now, but they were all of them. They were awful. And, and I was just in this turmoil because I loved this woman, and I don't know what's coming her way. And all I could remember thinking is, whatever it is, I'm going to be right there with her, and I'm going to share that suffering with her, whatever comes. And it turned out to be nothing but a reaction that she got over. That's what Paul meant. So much that he wanted that relationship with Christ that he wanted to identify with him completely, becoming like him in his death. See, Jesus gave himself for others. He obeyed the Father's will rather than his own. What Jesus wanted, he set aside to do what the Father asked. He gave us all because he loved the Father and he loved us. And Paul wants to be like Christ, to love like that and to give like that. You know, Paul couldn't do that on his own. You and I can't either. Every day, many times a day, we have to turn from relying on ourselves and put our trust in God. But what we gain when we do compares to nothing else in all the world. Indeed, the entire world and everything that it has to offer is not even worth considering compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing, really knowing, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the biblical faith. And mere religion compared to that is less than nothing. Let me say to you today, if you're here, and if you don't know him, then come. Come to him. He's calling you. And I'm available. There are other people who are available. If you don't know what it means to have a personal relationship with God, <coughs> we'll show you from this book just how you can have and if you are here today and you already know him as your Lord and Savior, let me tell you what you need to do. Take your eyes off of other people. Take your eyes off yourself. And look to Jesus, the author and perfecter Thank you, Father, for your warning here. We confess how often we rely on ourselves. Help us, Lord, to 
with every failure and even those things which look like successes to turn from those things to you to look to you to listen and to obey and so may we grow in our knowledge and in our relationship